God, uh, we love you. We're grateful to get to be here this morning. I pray, God, that we would be more aware than ever of your Spirit's presence in our midst. Lead and guide us for the sake of your name. Amen. Uh, so as Phil mentioned, today we're starting a new series for the month of October uh, called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. So we're going to look at... Uh, some things in our world that are not the way they're supposed to be. And today, I want to kind of take a big overarching view and uh, start in the beginning of the story and flow through it uh, to some degree and uh, see the way God intended things to be from the beginning, where things have moved, and uh, God's call on the church to be an agent of change, to be a presence of hope and healing in a very broken world. So. Genesis 1.1, first book of the Bible. Let's start there. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in the beginning, God creates the heaven and the earth, and, and uh, it's chaotic. In, in the Jewish mindset, the waters reflect chaos. And so the Spirit of God is hovering over the chaos. And out of the chaos brings order. So right from the beginning, we see this image of God creating out of the chaos, bringing order, bringing beauty, bringing delight out of chaos, the spirit hovering over the waters and bringing order out of chaos. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Further down, Verse 11, God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. Uh, let's look at verse 20. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, what's interesting here is a lot of times we think about God blessing the first humans, saying, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What we often miss is that God's first blessing is to the creatures. And he blesses all the creatures to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And then we get to God creating humans, verse 26. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move around the ground. So God created mankind in its own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Over and over again in Genesis 1, God creates, 
and God declares it good over and over again. It is good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. God's creation from the beginning is a good creation. God created it good. And at the pinnacle, at the height of the sixth day, God creates human beings. And it is to human beings that he entrusts this world, that he entrusts the natural world, the creation. And he entrusts human beings to work it and take care of it. As Genesis 2.15 says, Lord, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And so from the very beginning, the first human vocation is to care for the planet, that we're called to be servants as God is a servant. God is a loving God who creates a good creation, who serves us out of the overflow of his love. He creates and serves us, and he creates us in his image to what? To out of the overflow of God's love in us, to serve. To serve. Now, uh, a lot of people talk about Genesis 1 and 2 and they describe it as paradise. And I suppose paradise is a, is a good word for describing it. It's, uh, it is a paradise of sorts. But I think often when we think of paradise, we think of Rivendell. Uh, like this big, huge, beautiful castle and uh, waterfalls cascading. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 describe more of like uh, farm life. Uh, the first humans were cultivators of the earth. They worked the earth and they experienced the goodness of God, the goodness of each other, the goodness of the land as they cultivated the earth together. And uh, what, what God has created is a good creation that many people describe as shalom. Now, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, but it's much bigger than what our, our English idea of peace. Uh, theologian Cornelius Plantinga describes shalom as the universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. So when you look around in the world and you see things that aren't the way they're supposed to be, it's not shalom. Shalom is the way things ought to be, the way they were intended to be from the beginning of creation. My definition of shalom is much shorter. <clears throat> Shalom is right relationships or union with God, others, self, and the earth. It's relational harmony. The relationships we were created to live in with God, others, within ourself, and the planet, it's relational harmony. That's shalom. That's the way things were intended to be from the beginning of creation. Now, we all live in a world where we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not like it was in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 3 happened. And what we see in Genesis 3 is a rebellion against God. And it, 
that may sound harsh. It's, it's a sense in which uh, God has given the first humans the best possible life. He has given them the most beautiful, best possible role in the story that God is writing. And what happens is that the first humans believe the lie that the role God has given them isn't good enough. Uh, there's this, this fear that enters in and says, I think God's holding out on me. Uh, it's a mistrust of the goodness of the creator God of the universe. This mistrust enters in, this fear bubbles up and says, I, I think I can write a better story. I think God's holding out on me. I think I can write a better story for myself. I think there's a better role for me in the story. And so the first humans choose autonomy from God. And God, being the loving creator that God is, does not strike them dead. Instead, he comes to them and he says, where are you? Where are you? And God's question, where are you, isn't just a question of a physical location. It's a question of where is your heart? What happened? What happened? Where are you? And the man's response is, I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. See, when, when Adam and Eve ate this fruit and they realized they were naked, this isn't just realizing they were physically naked. They realized they could be seen through and through. They felt so vulnerable emotionally, physically, spiritually. I was afraid because I knew you could see me. You could see me. And so I hid, I covered myself, I hid. And this is the response humanity has been giving ever since. In our own sin, in our own brokenness, we live out of fear, and so we hide. And then what do the first humans do? What's the next thing they do after hiding? They blame. They shift blame. Man says, the woman, the woman gave me the fruit. And the woman says, uh, the serpent. The serpent told me to eat it. it. It's this shifting of blame as we try to hide behind our own fig leaves, behind our own coverings, and our coverings simply are not adequate. They don't work. And so this, there, there, uh, there are really two ways to live. We can be motivated by fear or love. God is always motivated by love. And I believe when we look around our world today and we see the things that we say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So many of those things come out of a fear-motivated way of living rather than love. We can be motivated by fear or we can be motivated by love. And so there is this, uh, there is this movement of shalom. Shalom moves to shalom shattered. We see in Genesis 3 and 
into our day, shalom has been shattered. And the heart of God is always for shalom to be regained. And God's invitation to the church, to us, is to be a part of that reclamation project, to be a people who are all about God's heart for shalom being restored, being regained, being redeemed and brought back the way things are supposed to be. Next slide. John tells us there is no fear in love. So if there are two ways to live, being motivated by fear, being motivated by love, John says, choose love. There's no fear in love. If there is no fear in love, then there is no love in fear. When we live out of fear, we are so consumed by it that love doesn't have the opportunity to present itself. Jesus invites us to dig deeply into the, the recesses of our being where God has planted love within us and to choose a life that is motivated by love and not fear. Next slide. A culture of fear, politics of fear, consumer-driven fear, they all seduce us into believing that the role God has given us is not good enough, that there is a better way, a better story. Jesus invites us to wake up to God's reality of life, love, and shalom. When we move from Genesis 3, we see things move downhill quite quickly. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, are kicked out of the garden. They have children. We know, uh, we're told, the story tells us that they had two sons, Cain and Abel. And if you're familiar with Genesis 4, you know that Cain killed Abel. Uh, I think it was motivated out of fear. Fear that his brother was better than him. Fear that God looked more favorably upon Abel than he looked on Cain. Fear that he wasn't good enough. Whatever it was, Cain kills Abel. And so we see immediately the breakdown in the individual, the breakdown in the family. Then we see it move out from there, the breakdown in society, and ultimately the flood, the breakdown. The whole earth is corrupted. And so the movement... The trajectory of shalom shattered moves from the individual to the family to society to the earth. Brokenness in every area. And if the movement of shalom shattered goes this way, so does the movement of shalom regained. Uh, we need to look deeply at our own individual hearts. We need to look at our family life we need to look at society and we need to look at the planet and ask the question, what is Jesus calling us to in each of these areas? To be agents of shalom, to be agents of healing, to be agents of hope in a world where shalom has been shattered. What we see after the flood, as the waters are receding, Noah sends out a dove. And the dove has historically been this image of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is once again hovering over the chaos. 
to bring beauty, to bring order, to bring shalom out of the chaos. And when the waters finally recede and, and Noah and his family, they get off the ark, God says to Noah the same thing he said to the first humans, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It, it, a new creation has emerged. And God's heart is that this new family, this new creation will give birth to goodness, to shalom, but it, it doesn't work out. Once again, we quickly see the cascading downfall of humanity. And so, so God uh, has a new plan, and he chooses a people through a person, Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you to what? To bless. I'm going to bless you to bless. I want you to be a presence of shalom and spread that shalom through the world. But the Israel project ultimately fell apart. And so God said, I will come. I will come to show how to bring shalom. Uh, the New Testament, were, if, the, if there is a way of framing the Hebrew idea of shalom in the New Testament, it would be the way Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God is the New Testament way of talking about shalom. And what we see in Jesus is one of the first things he does when he arrives on the public scene is he enters into water. And as he is baptized, as he's coming up out of the water, what happens? The Spirit comes and hovers upon him like a dove. Once again, the creating, animating force of the universe comes and hovers over the chaos. And out of the chaos, Jesus walks out of those waters to bring shalom, to bring hope, to bring healing, to bring a new way of living. And ultimately, when Jesus ascends, he sends his spirit. To who? To his church, to us. We now carry that very life-giving, creating, animating force of the universe that is called to hover over the chaos and bring hope, bring healing, bring shalom in the midst of shalom shattered. This is the call on the church. This is what we're invited to do. And so, uh, as we explore the idea of not the way it's supposed to be, as we look at uh, the way injustice is so often highlighted in our world. I want us to, in, to invite us to be thinking about how do I be a presence of shalom? How, how is God filling me with his spirit to be motivated by love rather than fear? And so this morning, I, I want to just look at a couple of few things going on in our world. And uh, Phil's going to dive way deeper into these things in the class that he's leading. Uh, please talk with him afterwards and sign up for the class and wade into these issues where you can dialogue about them a lot more. Uh, but 
As we look at the trajectory of shalom regained from individual to family to society to earth, uh, if I can have the next slide. Power is always given to be used for those on the underside of power. I, I've said this a lot here. Uh, I'm sure I'll say it a lot more. But we find ourselves in positions of power. And God always gives power to be used for those on the underside of power. The ultimate sign of power is so upside down. God's kingdom is so upside down. The ultimate sign of power is the cross. Jesus enthroned on a cross. When the powers of the day, when Rome and the religious leaders of the day thought they had done away with Jesus, Jesus, who says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where is the all-powerful person? He's on a cross. Because Jesus knows that power is always to be used for those on the underside of power. And so he goes to the cross and suffers a brutal death so that we could experience life so that he could cover over all the sin, all the brokenness, all the shalom shattered in the world to begin this movement of bringing shalom back, making things back into the way they're supposed to be. And so when we see things in our world where shalom is shattered, next slide, this is an image of uh, rainforests on fire, the rapid decline of our rainforests in our world. Wealthy farmers going in, kicking out peasant farmers out of the rainforest and burning the forests down to make room for more cattle, to, to feed the Western consumption for beef. This is shalom shattered. What, what is the motivation here? Money. Uh, I think there's an undergirding motivation of fear that there's never enough there's never enough I need more there's never enough and so we see shalom shattered next racism uh, at the root of racism is always fear it's a fear of the other it's a fear of the unknown it's a fear of someone different than me and how do I interact what do I say how do I engage and in a world where we continue to see unarmed black men gunned down there is so much fear in our world motivated by fear what what if we were next slide motivated by love What if we were motivated by love? This man goes to uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protests and he shows up uh, to give police officers hugs. Uh, there's a different way of being in the world. There's a different way to live in the world. It's, it's a way that is motivated by love not fear. Next slide. Dr. Martin Luther King, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love 
can do that. Next slide. Uh, I don't know if you recognize this image or not. It, it's one that uh, just struck me so deeply when it hit the news. Uh, this boy, his name is Omar, lives in Aleppo, and his uh, apartment building was bombed. And he survived. And uh, there was this CNN broadcaster who, who talked about this and uh, just brought her to tears. Uh, we, we live in a world where we need more tears. We live in a world where shalom is shattered and we need more hope for those who live in deeply broken places like Aleppo. Uh, what, what, is, what is the fear of the migrant? What is the fear of the refugee? Uh, this fear of potentially our security being at risk, the, this fear of the unknown? What, what is the fear that, that causes us to somehow justify and somehow say that all the texts in Scripture that over and over and over again say, welcome the stranger, welcome the foreigner among you? Uh, what is the fear that, that causes us to somehow justify and say, well, those don't apply to us? Uh, what is the fear that causes us to somehow say that we can pick and choose. Uh, it, it's fear. This is the CEO of Wells Fargo. How are we already, after 2008, how are we already uh, seeing yet another banking situation that is just highly questionable? where those in positions of power are taking advantage of those on the underside of power. <clears throat> I, wonder, I wonder what it would be like if, if out of God's spirit in us, we were motivated by love. And I wonder what it would be like if we just started with our common humanity. What would it be like if we started with our common humanity? There are a couple of children here. We look at these children and I, you know, we wonder, what will they be like when they grow up? What, what fears are driving them? What love is driving them? Who loves them? And who do they love? Uh, when we look at these children, do you see these children or do you see, next slide. What emotions rise up in you when you see this picture? Because the image before is them when they were children. And political dialogue is fine, having your opinion is fine, liking one candidate or not liking one or not liking either is fine. They're human beings. One of them is probably going to be our president. Uh, does that cause you fear? Uh, let's be honest. But they're human beings. 
God is in charge of our security. God has our future in his hands. Not one of these two, not anyone else, God. Are you motivated out of fear or out of love? How do we become a people who become more and more motivated out of love rather than fear? How do we embrace the life-giving, creating, animating force of the universe, the Spirit of God who lives in us, who is always, always inviting us to more love, more love, more love, less fear, less fear, less fear. Uh, Jesus, on the cross, shows us the way of love, not fear. Uh, Jesus went in the garden, praying to the Father, not wanting to go to the cross. He could have run away out of fear, but out of love, he took the long, hard road to the cross. And so this morning, as we again engage this ancient practice where we take this bread and we dip it in this cup, and we remember that long, hard road of the cross, that Jesus was broken and poured out for us, and that we're invited to be broken and poured out for the world so that we might be a part of this project that Jesus started 2,000 years ago of bringing order out of chaos, of bringing shalom out of shalom shattered. When we come and we partake of the bread and the cup, we do so together in our common humanity, joining with Jesus in his call that he has placed on our lives to be agents of shalom in our world. Uh, maybe this morning there's some fear you're carrying around in you that you just want to leave here and you want to embrace and take more of the love that Jesus has planted in your soul. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would make us a people who are filled with more love. Fill us with your love, God. Give us hope for our broken world. Give us hope that in a world of shalom shattered, that there are always tastes of shalom all around us. There is always beauty all around us. There is always more of you all around us. God, fill us with your life-giving spirit to bring that hope, that healing, that shalom to our world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As you go this morning, my prayer for us is that God will free you more and more from fear and fill you more and more with love. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you his shalom, the very peace of Jesus that surpasses all understanding. Grace and peace be yours. Amen.